Our Father in heaven, we come before you this day, opening your word, desiring to hear your voice. Oh God, we want you to teach us. God, but we have ears that cannot hear, eyes that cannot see, minds that are dull from sin. So God, we need a supernatural work of your spirit, God, to enable us to understand divine truth. So God, do that miracle work in us this day, allowing us to understand, allowing us to embrace the truth, giving us a heart and desire to obey it. God, forgive my sin and my unworthiness. And by the blood of Jesus, make me a vessel fit for your service this day. Grant me the words that I should say and the power of your spirit as I try to preach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I've told more than one young woman who has come to me to talk about getting married. You can't marry the man you want him to be. You can only marry the man he is. I, I have seen a lot of young girls who had visions of the man they wanted this guy to be. But in reality, that's not who he was. And I try to convince them and tell them, you're not marrying the person you want him to be. You're marrying who he is. The scripture we're looking at this morning, Jesus presents himself clearly as king. A lot of people are prepared to receive Jesus as king. Provided he's the king they want him to be. But hear me. You cannot receive Jesus as the king you want him to be. You can only receive him as the king that he is. Jesus is the king who humbled himself to save his people. He's a crucified king who calls his followers to live a crucified life. And if you're going to receive Jesus as king, you have to receive him as the that king, this crucified king who expects his followers to live a crucified life. As we come today to Mark chapter 11, I just want to remind you of the context. The first eight chapters of the book of Mark, we see Jesus in his public ministry. He's displaying his power and authority as he casts out demons and teaches about the kingdom and heals many people. He calls those first disciples. He's establishing himself and his identity. We come to the end of chapter 8 all the way through chapter 10. And this is a time when Jesus is kind of focused on teaching his followers about discipleship. He's teaching them about the need to humble themselves and serve and showing them that that's what he has come to do. 
to be humble and to serve. He's, he's focusing on the core idea of discipleship. But now the time has come for Jesus to approach Jerusalem for the last week of his life. This is what we call the Passion Week. The week that will culminate in his crucifixion and resurrection. And what I want you to see as we look at these verses this morning, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, He's announcing His kingship. Up until this point, you may remember, every time somebody declared His identity, He would tell them to be quiet. Remember the demons would try to say, You are the Holy One of God. We know who you are. He, he would tell them to be quiet. When someone would identify him as the Son of God, he would tell them, don't tell anybody. Because he knew once the announcement that he's Messiah goes public, that it was going to culminate in his death. It was going to bring a confrontation with the religious authorities that would lead to the cross. But now that time has come. Jesus no more is trying to keep his identity secret. He comes into Jerusalem now announcing who he is. But what we're going to see is as he enters Jerusalem, he doesn't come in the way you would expect a king to approach the capital city. No, it's not at all like you would expect. Because he's not coming as the kind of king the people expect. What you and I have to see as we look at these verses, we have to understand the king that he is. The king that he came to be. Not the king we expect him to be. Not the king we want him to be. We have to see Him for who He is and make sure that the King Jesus we have embraced is the true King. I want to make three observations from these verses that I pray will make the message of these verses very, very clear. In verses 1-6, through six, I want you to notice first the King's authority. The King's authority. Verse 1, it says they approached Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of Jewish religious life and essentially the center of Jewish national life because that's where the temple is. Jesus' destination ultimately is the temple. He's coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is one of the festivals all adult males that were Jews were required to come to Jerusalem for the Passover every year. And we know he's coming to Jerusalem on the Passover to die as the Passover lamb. He's predicted it three times already in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. He's told his disciples, we're going now to Jerusalem where I will be betrayed into the hand of the scribes and chief priests. I will be crucified and I will rise. He's coming to Jerusalem to die. But what I need you to see is this. He's not going to Jerusalem as a helpless victim. He's in charge. He's going to Jerusalem as a king. Notice it says, 
he was approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany. Bethany is a city you will be familiar with because this is the home of Mary and Martha's sisters and their brother Lazarus. This is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the city where Mary would later anoint Jesus with the perfume of pure nard. Jesus said, she's anointing me for my burial. This is a, a very familiar city in the New Testament. Bethphage is a village near Bethany. Now, this location is on the slope of the Mount of Olives. It is about two miles east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives rises two to three hundred feet above Jerusalem. And the only thing between Mount of Olives and Jerusalem is the Kidron Valley. So keep this in your picture, this in your mind. Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives. He can see the eastern wall of the temple complex as Mount of Olives towers above Jerusalem and he stops and there he sends two of his disciples on a mission verse 2 go into the village opposite you that would be Bethphage and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat untie it and bring it here if anyone says to you why are you doing this you say the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it back here he sends his disciples to go into Bethphage there they would find a donkey with its foal with its colt a young donkey and he said, you untie it and bring it here. If anybody says anything, you tell them the Lord needs it and they're going to let you have it. Now, there are those who say that the Lord must have arranged this ahead of time. I mean, the only way he could have done this, you could go take somebody's donkey and they'd let you have it, was if you had set up some kind of arrangements with them. That's not at all true. Do you remember when Jesus told Peter, go down to the lake, cast in a line, the first fish you catch, open its mouth, what was he going to find? A coin. He said, you take that coin and you go pay the tax that you and I owe. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think Jesus went down to the lake and put a coin in that fish's mouth and threw it back? And even if he did, what are the chances that'd be the first fish that Peter caught? How in the world did he pull that off? Well, he's the son of God. Supernatural the same with this donkey he didn't have to prearrange this he's the son of God he has orchestrated this by his supernatural power to secure this colt now the question is why does he need a colt Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 tells us why Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Zechariah 9 verse 9 announces that the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem and he's going to come riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus secures this donkey 
in order to purposely fulfill this prophecy. And you'll notice it says it's a donkey on which no one has ever sat. This is important. If you read the Old Testament, you'll discover that when animals were used for sacred purposes, they had to be animals that had never been used before. For instance, if a heifer was to be sacrificed, it had to be a heifer that no yoke had ever been placed on. In other words, it had never been used for work. When they secured oxen to pull the cart that the ark, the Holy of Holies was on, they said it had to be oxen that had never been under a yoke. So Jesus is making it clear this donkey is being secured for a sacred purpose. For Jesus to enter Jerusalem as the promised king. And here's something else to think about. Jesus is using the right that a king had to requisition somebody else's property for royal purposes. You see, not just anybody could go up and get your donkey if you wanted to use it, but the king had a right to acquisition your property if he needed it for royal purposes. Jesus is exercising his royal prerogative as king to acquisition this cult, sacred purpose for him to ride in Jerusalem as king. If you read verses 4 through 6, which I won't take time to do, you'll notice that everything happened exactly the way Jesus said. Jesus orchestrated this event for him to enter Jerusalem as Jerusalem's king. What are we seeing here? He's in charge. Are you with me? Jesus has set this whole thing up. He's the one calling the shots. He's announcing his kingship at his own time on his own terms. Yes, he's going to Jerusalem to die, but he's not going to die as a victim. He's going to die as a king. Are you with me? You see his authority. There are times in your perspective as you look at the world as a believer it may appear to you things are out of control it may appear things are progressing in the wrong direction you ever think that you ever look at the world and say things are going the wrong way here things in my life sure do seem out of control listen to me we are following a crucified king. The Christian life is a crucified life, which we should expect difficulty and hardship. But I want you to keep this in mind. Even a crucified life is under the authority of Jesus. Are you understand what I'm saying? He's going to die, but he's still in control. Oh, you, you, may, you may look at things from our perspective and it may seem things are out of control, but if you're following Jesus faithfully, if He is your King, if you've submitted to Him as King, rest assured, He is in charge. From the world's perspective, Jesus is going to die. It looks to them like He's marching to defeat, but He's not, is He? No. It may look to you like Christians are marching to defeat in this world, but I assure you that is not the case. 
He is absolutely in charge. When you follow Jesus obediently and faithfully, things are never out of control. That's the king's authority. Now as we come to verses 7 and 8, I want to show you the king's humility. The king's humility. Verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus, put their garments on it, and he sat on it. This would be in place of a saddle. There was no saddle. So the disciples took some of their cloaks, their outer garments, and laid them on the colt. Now I want you to think about something. Why a colt? We've already seen that it's fulfilling the prophecy. Daughter of Jerusalem, your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a pack animal. But if he's coming to announce his kingship, why a colt? Why not a war horse? Why not be carried into Jerusalem? They had these things they called couches and they would be carried and the king would sit on the couch and they would carry them. Well, why not come to Jerusalem like that? Why a cult? Well, first it's to fulfill prophecy because Zechariah 9.9 said the king would come on a cult. But there's another reason. I want you to listen to Zechariah 9.9 again. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Lowly and mounted on a donkey. In other words, humble, some versions say. Humble and mounted on a donkey. He comes on a colt, on a donkey, as a sign of humility. This is a humble way for the king to enter the city. Mark 10, 45. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Yes, he was coming as a king, but he was coming to die. Jesus was not coming to Jerusalem to exalt himself. His coming to Jerusalem, he was humbling himself. Because he wasn't marching into the temple to take up his throne. He was marching to Calvary to die. Are you with me? When you look at verse 8, he's clearly coming as a king. Many spread their garments in the road. Others spread leafy branches, having cut them from the fields. This spreading of cloaks and branches is a, a ceremonious welcome, like you would welcome a king. We see this in the Old Testament. One example was the inauguration of Jehu. 
2 Kings 9.13 They hurried and took their cloaks, spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. It's like rolling out the red carpet. That's what they were doing for Jesus. Rolling out the red carpet for the king. But the king isn't on a white horse. Can I tell you this is a far cry from the reception that the king truly deserved? Where's the military escort? Where are all the dignitaries that are welcoming him? Where's that white horse? Oh, the white horse is coming in Revelation 19 when he comes back as a conquering king. But this time he comes as a crucified king. Here's the thing I want you to think about. People are willing to submit to and follow a conquering king who gives them what they want. Oh yeah. People will follow a Jesus who exists like a genie in a bottle to grant their wish and make their life everything they want it to be. Oh, they'll follow that king. But they're not so eager to follow a crucified king who's calling them to follow him on the way of the cross. But that's the king he is. He's a king who came to die. A king who calls his followers to die to self and embrace the way of the cross. Listen to me. What sets Christians apart, true Christians, is this. We willingly submit to and follow and worship a crucified king. Oh, we're very well aware that Jesus came to Jerusalem not to be crowned, but to be crucified. And we submit to Him as the crucified King. Oh, we know this crucified King would later rise and will one day return. He'll one day come with the royal procession on the white horse with the armies of heaven. That day is coming. But we don't wait till that day to submit to him as king. We receive him as the crucified king who humbled himself to save his people. There's a third observation I want to make. We've seen the king's authority and the king's humility. I want to show you thirdly the king's priority. The king's priority. Verse 9 those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is one of the psalms that the people recited at all the major festivals. They came, the religious feasts in Jerusalem. And they say, Hosanna! The word Hosanna means save us now. 
This points to the first priority of the coming king. His first priority is salvation. Hosanna! Save us. Now, now in Psalm 118, this shout, Hosanna, was directed to God. Which means these people who are crying Hosanna, um, what they're basically doing is crying out to God to fulfill His promises to deliver Israel through Jesus. God save us now through this One who's come in the name of the Lord. But this is what I need you to understand. Jesus is the King who's come to save. He is the One who's come in the name of the Lord to save God's people, but not as they expected. You see, they were looking for a King who was coming to save them from Rome, from their earthly enemies, to rescue them from Caesar. Jesus did not come to rescue them from Rome. He did not come to rescue them from Caesar. He came to rescue them from sin. He came to rescue them from Satan. Oh, He was coming as a king to bring salvation, but not the way they expected. The king's priority is salvation from sin. The second priority of the king is the kingdom. Verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And they repeat again, Hosanna in the highest. You may remember in the last portion of Mark we looked at, we saw the healing of blind Bartimaeus and he calls Jesus the son of David. Well, here the crowd, that is the same crowd still traveling with Jesus, they take up the, the shout. Here's the one coming, the son of David who's coming to take up the throne of David. We remember the prophecy from 2 Samuel chapter 7 where Jesus promised David you will have one of your ancestors rule on the throne over the people of God forever. This is the Messiah, the Christ, the one the Jews were waiting for and looking for. Now Jesus is coming into the city and they are hailing Him as this Messiah, this promised descendant of David who has come to raise up the kingdom of David and rule over the people. And what they're expecting at this point is for Him to restore Israel's national sovereignty. In other words, they're expecting Him to overthrow Rome, restore Israel to their national sovereignty, their independence, and make them once again the crown kingdom of the world. To restore them to the glory days of David's kingship and the early years of Solomon. Oh, they're expecting national deliverance and earthly prosperity all that goes along with it. Jesus is going to come and give them everything they desire. But again, it's not happening as they expected. Jesus' priority was indeed the kingdom. But it wasn't coming in the way they expected. The third priority is the temple. Verse 11. 
Christ is coming as king. His priority is salvation, the kingdom, and it's the temple. Verse 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He comes into the temple. He looks around at everything that's going on in the temple. He does not like what he sees. We know that from the verses that follow. And having looked around to see what's going on, he leaves for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. During, during this week of Passover, Jesus doesn't spend the night in Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem during the day and goes back to Bethany to the home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus in the evening to spend the night. So he comes to look at the temple. Here's the question. Why does Jesus go to the temple? What is the significance of the temple? Well, I mentioned this already. The temple is the center of Jewish religious life. It is the center of the Jewish religious system. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because Jesus has come to replace the Jewish religious system. As we're going to discover tonight, in our text tonight, the Jewish religious system had become fruitless and corrupt. And Jesus has come to replace it. Jesus has not come to reform the religion of the temple. He's not come to, he's not come to institute a program of change or improvement. He has come in fulfillment of it to replace the religion of the temple. I want you to think with me for just a minute. Jewish religion revolves around the temple. Right? The temple is the place where God dwells among his people. Secondly. And thirdly, the temple is the place where sacrifice for sin was made. So get these three things in your mind. Jewish religion revolves around the temple. It is the place where God dwells among his people. And it's the place where sacrifice for sin was made. Jesus replaces the temple in each of those three ways. Jesus now is the center of of the religion of God's people. The center point of the religion of God's people is no longer a place. It's no longer a physical temple. It's a person. That's why Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. John tells us he's talking about the temple of his body. It is not the temple who is the center of the religious life of God's people. It is the Son of God who is the center of our religious life. No longer a place but a person. Secondly, the place where God dwells among his people. God no longer dwells among his people in a building. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He's talking about Jesus calling him the word. In verse 14 he says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among men. The one who is himself God came to dwell among men. And Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see, God no longer dwells among his people in a place. He dwells among the people in the person of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we said the temple is the place where sacrifice for sin was made. It is no longer the place where the sacrifice for sin is made. 
now the sacrifice for sin is a person. Are you with me? This is what I need you to see. Jesus is replacing the religion of the temple. He's fulfilling it, making it obsolete. What is Jesus' priority as He comes to Jerusalem as King? Salvation. The kingdom and the temple to become what the temple has always been. Salvation, the kingdom, and the temple. Now I want you to think about this. How does Jesus accomplish all of these priorities? How does He achieve salvation? How does He open the door to the kingdom? How does He come to replace the temple? It's on the cross. Don't you see? That's why He has to come to die. Oh, please listen. The cross wasn't a detour to the throne. The cross of Jesus is not a detour to the throne. The, the road to the throne leads directly through Calvary. It's not a bypass. It's not a detour. Think about this. Without the cross, we have no salvation. Without the cross, the way to the kingdom is shut. Everybody's crying. He come set up the kingdom. Come set up the kingdom. They don't think about him going to die. But if he doesn't die, the way to the kingdom is closed. Without the cross, there is no true religion. You're still left with a religion of the temple that is fruitless and corrupt. Listen to me, church. Jesus did not come as the king the people expected. He is not the king the people expected. But he is the king the people needed. He's not necessarily the king they wanted. But he is the king they needed. Our world is full of people who will not receive Jesus as king because he's not the king they want him to be. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you received Jesus for the king that he is? Or for the king that you want him to be. Have you followed Jesus as a crucified king. Who calls you to live a crucified life. Or have you signed up to follow a Jesus. Who's supposed to make all your problems go away. Supposed to do what you want him to. And give you health and wealth and happiness. Can I tell you something? All that's coming. The life of abundance is coming. The life of eternal happiness is coming. The life of riches beyond compare is coming. But it's coming when he comes back and sets up the kingdom of God. In the meantime, you have signed up to follow a crucified king. Are you willing to follow 
the way of the crucified. He came into Jerusalem as a crucified king. And that's the king we have to follow. Let's pray.